0: Paying too much for health insurance? Frustrated by high deductibles, network restrictions, and increasing premiums? There's a better way. Christian Healthcare Ministries. CHM is a Christian community delivering a robust, faith-based solution to the high cost of healthcare. If your current health insurance has become more of a racket than a remedy, take back control of your healthcare at around half the price. Learn more and enroll today at chministries.org. That's chministries.org.
1: I'm Tammy Bruce. I'm Juan Williams. I'm Shannon Bream, and this is the Fox
2: News Rundown.
3: Thursday, July 27th, 2023. I'm Jared Alpern. President Biden's son pleads not guilty to tax offenses in federal court after a plea deal with prosecutors derails.
4: They were looking for immunity and they were told they're not going to get it.
3: We speak with Fox News Politics co-anchor and anchor of the story, Martha McCallum.
2: I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The latest educational policy change has riled up opponents of Florida governor and presidential candidate Ron DeSantis as it attempts to address slavery in a different way.
5: It is not an implication of any benefits of slavery. It is the story of the individual's resilience and, and perseverance.
0: And I'm Jason Chaffetz, I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown.
3: Not guilty. It was the unexpected plea announced by President Biden's son, Hunter, in a federal courtroom in Delaware. Hunter Biden was expected to plead guilty to a pair of misdemeanor tax offenses as part of a broader deal reached with federal prosecutors. But as attorneys and the judge met for the proceeding, the deal blew up over immunity and concerns the judge had about her role in enforcing a diversion agreement to settle a felony gun charge. Even before the plea was entered, prosecutors and defense attorneys for Biden huddled on a possible revised deal. And that could still happen. But for now, the son of the President of the United States is pleading not guilty to federal offenses stemming from unreported income.
1: Hunter Biden is a private citizen, and this was a personal matter for him. As we have said, the President, the First Lady, They love their son and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life.
3: White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre also says the investigation is being run independently and overseen by a U.S. attorney nominated by former President Trump. That assurance has not satisfied many House Republicans who have, since the deal was first announced last month, believed Hunter Biden is getting privileged
4: treatment. I had this feeling, actually, I, I was talking to our executive producer, at the story and i said you know is there any chance that this thing falls apart because it seemed sort of you know too perfectly crafted to get him this immunity that was going to last really forever
3: martha mccallum is the anchor of the story on the fox news channel and co-moderator of next month's republican presidential debate
4: for anything that was attached to any of these charges and of course almost everything is attached to these charges, because although they were tax filing misdemeanors, the money behind them and the income that created that tax form was linked to this Burisma deal, linked to his work at the Chinese Energy Company. And also, I thought it was odd that they had sort of pre-placed this podium and, oh, it's going to be very quick. And then, you know, Hunter's going to probably have a statement afterwards, or at least his lawyers will. And it just felt like a situation that could take a turn especially since you have all this pressure that had mounted from these whistleblowers who are testifying that they weren't allowed to pursue these felonies that david weiss had told them he didn't have the power to pursue these cases in washington and in california it just felt like how could this judge just accept this plea deal um at face value. And, and it was very interesting to me because she said, you know what, I'm not going to rubber stamp this deal that was created by these prosecutors and the Department of Justice given everything that has come out in recent weeks, which is a lot. There's a lot of new information in this case. And to cut off the ability to use any of it in a further trial or in further investigations just feels, as she said, unconstitutional.
3: Right. And it seems like it wasn't so much what the whistleblower said, but what her role ultimately would have been if the prosecution did want to move forward with charges. Like, in other words, she would have had to make some sort of like statement of fact that is a pretty big decision for her, for a judge who isn't on the investigative team.
4: That's exactly right. And she doesn't want to have the responsibility for giving this blanket immunity on all of these issues. And have that come back to her and feel that she had been used or rubber stamped were her words. She wasn't willing to do that. So, you know, I, I think that there, people have such a lack of trust in institutions. And I think that people on all sides of the, you know, some people already have looked at it and said, you know, this is just Republicans trying to take him down and to distract some of the Trump issues that are out there. We're waiting for another indictment likely of the former president as well. And then other people look at it and say, look, finally, you know, I mean, Hunter Biden should not have this sweetheart deal. He shouldn't be treated differently than anybody else who doesn't pay their taxes for two years on a hundred thousand dollar tax bill. And, you know, signs a form claiming that he's not on drugs when he is to get a, his hands on a gun. Um, you know, this is an administration that says that they want to make it much more difficult for people to get guns. So that that puts them in a difficult position on this as well.
3: So at the end of the day, though, this doesn't necessarily derail a plea agreement, right? The judge sort of gave both sides the opportunity to work this out and come back at a later date. And it seemed like those conversations are already underway.
4: Yeah, that's absolutely true. There there can be another plea agreement. This one clearly blew up because the terms of it weren't palatable to her. And in fact, the Justice Department attorneys who are new to this case Um, they're not the people who worked on it for the past five years also seem to feel that they wanted a little bit more leg room because they said yes we do have an ongoing uh, investigation here and she said are you looking into the possibility of federal violations that they didn't register as foreign agents when they did this business overseas and they said we can't go into it but yes so it could be but but if if you know that's going to be a difficult deal for the biden Side to say yes to because they know that these situations or it's likely that they believe these situations have a lot of long tentacles that could lead to future potential jail time for their clients. So um, they were looking for immunity and they were told they're not going to get it.
3: So what are the next steps? Do we have an expectation for when, you know, both sides are going to come back before this judge?
4: We haven't heard a timeline on it yet, and I, I think it will take a little bit of time but the problem is that since they made this plea agreement, you have a lot of new information that's come to light. You have this 1023 that's been released about a potential bribe that happened according to a confidential human source in Ukraine, where the head of Burisma said that he gave $5 million to one Biden and $5 million to another for a policy outcome. So, you know, all of this new information, the whistleblowers, all of it, that, that could get into the mix here. So I think it's going to take them a little while to sort out you know, to, to get back to a deal, because I think it's going to be tricky for the Biden side to feel comfortable signing off on it. And it could go to trial. I mean, that's, that's clearly a possibility here. And then you have the political, you know, Congress's side of this investigation, Kevin McCarthy saying, you know, it's incumbent upon me with this new information that was part of the testimony that people gave in Congress. Hey, what do you want? He said, what do you want me to do? Just ignore it. Um, so they have their own process to figure out as well.
3: I was going to ask about Congress, because regardless of what had happened in court in Delaware, whether the guilty plea was accepted, if it wasn't, as we saw it play out, that wasn't going to change any calculation from Republicans in the House of Representatives, was it?
4: Unlikely. But I think that the fact that the plea deal did fall apart will, in some ways, give them more confidence about continuing to dig into this. You know, you think about these whistleblowers who worked on the case for five years, who said that they saw... Um, felonious activity in his taxes that would be treated very differently for anyone else who committed these felonies. And I think Congress is going to have to decide whether or not they want to pursue an impeachment. And I wonder what the American people will, how they'll interpret that as we head into an election. I think there is an exhaustion with all of these legal and impeachment avenues that feel like they go down in every presidency, um, these days. So, I I think they're going to have to make a careful calculation about whether or not they want to pursue it. And Kevin McCarthy, I think, made it clear that, you know, what he was considering is is an inquiry into whether or not there should be an impeachment proceeding. So that's a level removed from actually doing it at this point.
3: And and that process would still have to show some sort of link between, you know, what it is that, that Hunter Biden is going to admit to and connecting that to the actual president.
4: Exactly. And that's, I think, what they... Will want to learn from Devin Archer on Monday. Uh, he will testify behind closed doors. There'll be a transcribed output um, of his testimony. But the early leaks on that are that he's going to say that he was in more than two dozen meetings with these foreign officials um, who needed our help. You know, reportedly, Biden said to his father they need our help, and then put his dad on speakerphone in the middle of the table and introduced him to. Uh, Nikolai and Vadim at Burisma. So Devin Archer's testimony, I think, is very important. And when you you link it together, potentially, with Tony Bobolinsky's testimony and all of these different players who are sort of now in the mix, I think you have a lot more meat on the bones than you did before. So obviously, Congress is going to take all of that into account.
3: Yeah. And, you know, the other thing that I'm interested in is kind of how this plays out, not from a congressional standpoint, but as we look now at the broader presidential election, um, you and and Brett Baer are going to be moderating the first debate in like three and a half weeks. I mean, do you expect these types of questions to be a big part of what the candidates talk about?
4: Well, I think that, you know, clearly it's one line of questioning for them, Mm -hmm. you know, where they would stand on whether or not they think that impeachment inquiry proceedings are merited here and, and, you know, what, how they would back that up. Um, You know, it'll be interesting to hear their take on it, honestly. And um, they're going to have to kind of decide where they come down on it between now and then, which will, which Mm -hmm. will be interesting, because I think that there will be some people, you know, I mean, accountability is something that we just hear people talk about all across the country. Right. They don't understand why, you know, if they break the law, they have to, Take the consequences and they feel like some of these privileged families in politics um, sort of skate by. So I, I think it's going to be something that voters do watch carefully. On the other hand, I think, as I said before, there is an exhaustion level mm-hmm. with all of this. And yeah. um, perhaps some of the candidates will say that they think, you know, it's, it's time to move on. So, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting line of questioning.
3: That, that's been one of sort of the calculations with with former President Trump, right, is you know, do we wanna have sort of a campaign about what happened, about the past, or does it want to be sort of forward looking? This is one of those issues that that kind of crosses, I guess, both of those categories.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, he has been a candidate of grievance and someone who has mm-hmm. based, you know, everything since twenty twenty on that grievance. Yes.
3: Um,
4: and even I know folks in his own campaign would like him to, you know, sort of talk more about the future and less about the past. And that I think is uh, it's a subject that is can be good for some of these candidates to dig in on. It hasn't moved the needle at all. His numbers are better than they've been, um, which is you know very significant. He's pulling really well in Iowa, really well in New Hampshire. So, you know, I, I think um, it's interesting. I had this one woman in New Hampshire who was you know just part of a, a montage of voters, and she said, you know, we need to stick by him now. You know, it's just four more years, and I think that you know, diehard Trump voters um, still feel Mm -hmm. that way. And they also have the grievance. So we'll see.
3: And I'm sure we'll continue to have these conversations. Looking forward to uh, hearing more as you uh, get closer to uh, debate night. And of course, we'll be uh, watching all of that real closely. So the best of luck to you and appreciate the time.
4: Look forward to it, Jared. Always good good to talk to you. Thank you.
0: This is Jason Chaffetz with your Fox News commentary coming up.
2: In poll after poll, former President Trump dominates among GOP voters and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis consistently places second, as was predicted, but... There's been no surge, no closing of the gap, even as polls show independent and more moderate voters may not go for former President Trump. DeSantis told CNN on July 18th when he was asked if he has become less electable with moderates and suburban moms.
3: Our bread and butter were people like suburban moms. Uh, We're leading a big movement for, for parents' rights, to have the parents be involved in education, school choice, get the indoctrination out of schools.
2: Schools and what's allowed in them has been a big focus of Governor DeSantis and the latest educational policy change addresses slavery and how to teach it. One part says middle schoolers will learn that, quote, slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Vice President Kamala Harris traveled to Florida late last week and said some want to rewrite or erase the past.
4: Those who attempt to teach that enslaved people benefited from slavery. Those who insult us in an attempt to gaslight us who try to divide our nation with unnecessary debates.
2: But DeSantis and others in Florida say these new standards were drafted in part by Dr. William Allen, an African-American man who has since said the vice president and others don't get it.
6: They are accusing the workforce that developed this curriculum of embracing the positive good school of slavery. That 19th century abuse, which I have refuted in my scholarship and many other people besides, these people are saying this is what's being presented in Florida. It is an absolute falsehood.
2: Others are defending the curriculum shift as well.
5: Well, first of all, this is a let's go over the standards and how they were developed. This is a comprehensive standard that goes from K to 12.
2: Manny Diaz Jr. is Florida's commissioner of education.
5: This is an expansion of standards. We had standards passed in Florida for African American history in 2000 and 1994, and this is an expansion as uh, a result of legislation that was pushed by Governor DeSantis to expand and dig deeper into African American history. And in fact, it's extremely comprehensive, including all of the atrocities going from the the passage bringing slaves, the the beginning of the slave trade coming from Africa and the atrocities and deplorable conditions that occurred during that passage into the plantation life and how the terrible conditions, the violence that was perpetrated and just the sheer uh, atrocity of humans owning other humans. I mean, all of it is covered And, and going in further into post civil war, Jim Crow laws, the civil rights movement and the fight for rights including all of the violence that was perpetrated and the atrocities. And within that, uh, this group of scholars, including Dr. William Allen, as he so eloquently uh, points it out, tells the story of individuals who, despite the atrocities going on, and while this is going on, all the violence and the terrible conditions, figured out a way through resiliency, through will, through strength, to acquire Mm. skills that some of them used to buy their freedom and to improve their lives it is not an implication of any benefits of slavery it is the story of the individual's resilience and and perseverance
2: do you think then that the wording should be changed because what you just said to me is not how it's being interpreted apparently and and maybe some language change would be useful
5: i I think that the dr allen stands by it because he is given the unvarnished history of what occurred in the stories of these individuals. And it is important that the story of those individuals be told as they are going through this. This is a period of time, but there are individuals that are going through this as that time goes, as this ugly, ugliest part of American history is going on, because after all, African-American history is part of American history.
2: You know, we've been following them. Multiple laws have been passed in Florida regarding how and what students are taught. It's got a lot of attention. One of the things you and Governor DeSantis have been accused of is book banning. And the new law regarding what is appropriate in school libraries is being called confusing by some. You've said some of these teachers and librarians are overreacting and they're pulling books for review they, they don't need to pull.
5: So the law is very clear and it is a local process in which parents and community members have the ability to challenge books and at the local level school boards and their designated panels review these books. But what we found that what governor DeSantis presented in a, in a, in a press conference with a video is this myth of the book ban hoax, where it details some of these books. And we, he showed in the video, the graphic nature of some of the books that had been pulled and The media pulled their feed because they were concerned about being fined by the FCC. Well, my question is, (laughs) if you're being concerned, being fined by the FCC, why would you want these books in libraries? So there's no book banning. There is a review of books. I think those professionals on the ground have the ability to make those decisions. And there is a process locally for those. But look, one example is Randy Weingarten a while back tweeted that Florida was banning to kill a mockingbird only for us to respond not only is to kill a mockingbird not banned it's on the recommended reading list for the florida department of education so you can see how they've taken this narrative to try to gaslight and create this image that florida's banning books i think if you ask any normal rational individual should students especially younger students have access to graphic books that show pornography that don't have educational value they would answer that they don't want that and again In Florida, we make that a parent's decision. If parents want to have students see certain materials, they have the ability to do that. However, they shouldn't be on the shelves where minors can access them without the permission of their parents, and especially those that are just graphic and don't have educational value.
2: One of the most well-known pieces of legislation passed in the state is the Stop Woke Act, and this prohibits universities and companies from giving lessons or trainings that make people feel, and I'm reading again, guilt, anguish, or any other form of psychological distress due to race, color, sex, or national origin. I know a federal judge ruled against that law and said it infringed on speech so much that it was, quote, positively dystopian. Wasn't that the intent, to limit speech that makes someone feel less than based on their origin story? Like, what's the legal response to the judge in this case?
5: Well, first of all, the educational piece of that law was not struck down. And as Governor DeSantis has said, in Florida, we're not going to teach our students to hate each other or hate our country, especially not judge students by their background or their color of their skin. And as a matter of fact, that law was put into place to make sure that there was an expansion of the standards for African-American history, and that all of these ugly moments were covered and taught for students to be able to arrive at their own conclusions without placing guilt on individual students sitting in that classroom or to teach those students to hate each other or our country. We have to have the conversation, and that's what this law does, about these ugly moments uh, and ugly periods of time that definitely happened. Uh, However, they shouldn't be slanted to have students hate each other or hate our country.
2: Do you think, Commissioner, these laws have provided enough guidance? You know, some, some of these laws, like the parental rights and education law, which some have called the, the don't say gay law, that says teachers could lose their jobs if they talk about, like, you know, gender or sexual orientation with students outside of mandated classes, like reproductive health. Like, should there be some additional teacher training, or is that really up to, you know, individual school boards to do that?
5: No, the, the Florida Department of Education has provided guidance on this, and the guidance is talking about instruction, when they try to create a narrative one of the narratives they try to create as well if a student has an issue they're not going to receive services that's a lie it's a myth if a student has issues they are to receive services however what we're saying if you have a minor student in a school that's going to receive any kind of services from changing a pronoun to name to all of that the parent needs to be included and what this creates is for teachers to follow our standards that are out there for all of it. We shouldn't be teaching these things in math. We shouldn't be teaching these things in our English classes. What we should be doing is sticking to our standards and making sure that our teachers are true to our standards. However, it has no bearing on services that are received by students on guidance and all of that in partnership with the parent. The parent needs to be aware. And some of those laws came from The genesis is that there were instances where students were being provided services where they were either in the process of changing the name they wanted to be called or or having an idea about transitioning over and not having the parent involved for six, eight weeks. That's unacceptable. Mm. And that's what was done in Florida to assure that, number one, parents have the rights to be involved. It is their kids, not the government kids. Uh, And number two, to make sure that we stick to teaching the subject matter that is at hand within the standards. There's a health curriculum that has its standards, but these things aren't taught across. Map. We don't teach, we don't teach science in health class. We shouldn't be teaching health in science class. So, it's it's sticking to the standards. And really, uh, again, they they created this narrative that that is totally false. And you know, the the technical assistance and guidance that's been provided to teachers is professional development on the standards, what we teach in Florida, and doing what's right. And obviously, the Parent Rights Bill is protecting the rights of parents to be involved in their child's education, which is the way it should be.
2: You know, Commissioner, many of us are used to hearing Republicans say we need less government in people's lives, not more, fewer laws, not more. Are these education laws exempt from that sentiment because it involves children for the most part?
5: I don't think it's exempt from that. I think we have standards and what we are doing with these laws is maintaining the integrity of our standards. It is well within the rights of a state to manage its curriculum, what's being taught in its public schools, and well within the rights to protect the rights of parents. It is not infringing or adding any more government to it. It's just making sure that there's not a runaway within the schools to things that are not within the standards and not what is the mission of our public schools.
2: And finally, do you think the case is being made that these laws are are needed? You know, There's a a pullout came out in June, uh, found that half of self-identified independent voters view Governor DeSantis unfavorably. 35% of independents said they viewed him very unfavorably. Um, Has the governor been too focused on these issues over the economy or or foreign policy or, or other matters?
5: Look, I think that the governor has always been focused on doing what's right, despite polling. And I think if you talk to parents in the state of Florida, And if you look at what's gone on in school board meetings and where parents have showed up to schools, parents are engaged and they want to protect their kids. And Governor DeSantis has no problems doing what is right, despite polling. Uh, And I think in the end, when history is written, it's going to show that doing the right thing is the benefit of the students and to the parents in our state.
2: Commissioner Diaz, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Thank you for having me.
6: Meet the American who
1: popularized Latin music. You might say Tito Puente was born to connect cultures. The New York City native born to parents from Puerto Rico found fame the world over as the Latin king, the Mambo king, or simply El Rey. The king in Spanish. So who was Tito Puente? Ernest Anthony Tito Puente Jr. was born April 20th, 1923 in New York City. He grew up in Spanish Harlem on the corner of East 110th Street and Madison Avenue, which would later be dubbed Tito Puente Way. He learned piano at age seven and later turned professional at the age of 13. The musical prodigy played over a dozen instruments. In 1942, he was drafted by the U.S. Navy at 19 years old and served aboard the escort carrier USS Santee, until the end of World War II. He was known as the one who played taps aboard his ship. The musician bore minor shrapnel scars on his face the rest of his life after being wounded during one of the ship's nine battles. After returning home, he attended New York City's world-famous Juilliard School on the GI Bill, and by the 1950s had emerged as a pioneering hitmaker of a hot new post-war American soundtrack. The flavors and cocktails of Latin music and culture swept the nation with Puente providing its most popular rhythms. In 1962, he wrote and recorded his signature hit, Oye Como Va?, which would later be redone by Mexican-American guitar prodigy Carlos Santana in 1970 following his breakout performance at Woodstock. To this day, the song continues to captivate global musicians and audiences. In 1997, Puente had released a 50-song multi-CD of his greatest works, and shortly before his death, he recorded his 120th album. He received six Grammy Awards, including a posthumous Lifetime Achievement Award in 2003. Ernest Anthony Tito Puente Jr. died in a New York City hospital after suffering heart trouble on May 31st, 2000. Beloved for his multicultural percussion, Afro-Cuban rhythms, and crossover compositions, Puente enjoyed a claim that spanned generations and genres. Go to the lifestyle section of foxnews.com to find more of these incredible stories. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Delosi.
6: Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at FoxBusinessPodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at FoxNewsPodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News
3: commentary. Jason Chaffetz.
0: What's on your mind? If there's one thing we learned from the House hearings this past week, is that certain traditional Democratic voting blocks no longer have a home in today's Democratic Party. The revealing questions and answers with two IRS whistleblowers last Wednesday put on full display the two-tiered standard of justice now advocated by progressive Democrats. Attempts to censor and suppress evidence and testimony the following day highlighted the party's full-throated commitment to censorship. Seeking to shut down heretical Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr., all eight Democrats voted against allowing Kennedy to offer public testimony. They were overruled by the committee's 10 Republicans. Did you ever think you would see the majority of the Democratic Party outright attack a Kennedy? The party seems to be doing its level best to purge itself of classical liberals. Support for free speech, due process, military readiness, public safety, and fiscal sanity are now considered heresy on the left. Will the Kennedy Democrats tolerate it? Ironically, they will find more of a home with conservative and libertarian leading Republicans, creating a new dynamic in 2024. Here are five reasons why today's Democrats have turned off the Kennedy Democrats. Number one. First Amendment. Today's Democratic Party has all but abandoned the First Amendment in favor of censorship. According to Pew Research, support for online government censorship among Democrats has risen dramatically from 40% in 2018 to 70% in July of 2023. Number two, due process. Likewise, Democratic voters who support the Fourth Amendment's due process provisions aren't finding a lot of support within their party, Democrats have become the party of government can do no wrong and they get to pick the winners and losers. Number three, military readiness. Today's Democrats see military spending as the only part of the federal budget they're willing to cut. Even as the Biden administration flirts with nuclear war in Ukraine and ignores a well-telegraphed takeover of Taiwan by China, military readiness is on the back burner. Number four, public safety. As Democrats fight to cut funding for police, elect prosecutors who won't prosecute, and do away with cash bail, they leave vulnerable those who live in the bluest areas, their own voting blocks. Number five, fiscal sanity. Finally, the blue dog Democrats who believed in balanced budget went from being an endangered species to being extinct. Spending restraint was never pristine in either party but progressives don't even pretend to take it seriously. I don't know the number of Democrats who still support free speech, due process, military readiness, public safety, or fiscal restraint, but I believe there are enough of them to swing an election. Whether they abandon their party, reject their front runners, refuse to participate, or vote Republican as Reagan Democrats did in 1980 and 1984, they can have an outsized influence On America's future. I'm Jason Chaffetz, a Fox News contributor and the host of the Jason in the House podcast.
6: You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown, and now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.